The Athletic. Oh, it's good to be back. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. It's another double pod week on this feed, but this is the main event, the equivalent of the 4.30pm Sunday Premier League kickoff. Why can't it still be four o'clock on a Sunday? That was a better time. I'm Ali Maxwell. Uh, I'm really excited about what we have in store today. I've got the gang with me, Liam Tharn, Michael Cox and Mark Kerry. Liam, last week, Sean Dyche was on the agenda and he went straight into Everton immediately installed a force field between the goalposts from, shall we say, goal line to 15 yards out uh, and found the, the set-piece special source in the back of the cupboard as well. Won their win against Arsenal. Yeah, wonderful. I was delighted to see the old Burnley in-swinger to the back post and obviously some old Burnley players combining. Um, yeah, great fun. Could barely have been more perfect. Uh, Michael Cox is here as well. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ali. Uh, this week's episode was your idea uh, and it's a returning favourite from a previous season. Yeah, we did it a couple of years ago where we got all 20 Premier League teams and uh, tried to find a statistical category where they are top or bottom or outliers, just something interesting about every Premier League team. So it worked well a couple of years ago. Let's hope so, it works well again. I think it will. Something that a 90s football magazine would have called pub ammo. <laughs> <laughs> but it, this is now sort of pub ammo for the PPDA era. It's like a kind of... <laughs> Statty speed dating for the uh, tactics and analytics minded. Uh, Mark, Kerry was so excited to be part of this episode that you wrote some code for us to split the 20 teams between the three of you, which strikes me as being wholly unnecessary, but quite a nice flex from you. Well, it's consistent with my brand, I thought. I mean, the idea of who we were all going to get um, as the teams to, to talk about divided by three. Uh, the idea was to pick out the hat, but we weren't all in the same uh, space at the same time. So I thought, write some code, put it on our Slack channel and, uh, and out popped some, some teams. I had offered to do a Rod Stewart style <laughs> draw, uh, but I was gazumped. Uh, in the interest of timekeeping, we've got 20 teams to talk about. There will therefore be very few frills here. Very much over to you guys once we get going. Um, there are 20 teams and it'll be one interesting, notable stat to wow the adoring listeners uh, and a heavily judgmental presenter. And I will be. I will be. I've got high standards here. Uh, I've picked a metric just to decide the order in which we do these. And it's often said that there's no underlying number that can measure heart and desire and passion, which are, of course, the most important aspects of the beautiful game. So I've chosen tackle win percentage as the closest version of that, starting with Passion FC, the gritty area of West London known as Fulham. Liam, you're in charge of Fulham. Let's go. Well, I've gone surprisingly ungritty with my uh, choice here. It was the set pieces that really stood out. Um, I was thinking of them a couple of seasons ago, obviously when they came up, uh, went down in sort of quite poor fashion, um, but have been fantastic from set pieces this season. They've had nine goals, which is the second most in the league. Uh, I know Coxie's already written about one of their routines that they use this year, as has Peter Rutzler, our, our Fulham writer. But really just a moment to acknowledge Andreas Pereira, who's been a fantastic buy. Um, his dead ball delivery is you know, close to second to none. I think he's up there just off Kieran Trippier uh, as one of the best in the league. League. And they have really nice variety, I think. At times they'll uh, have Mitro quite deep and they'll use sort of decoy um, runners or screens. I know Marco Silva likes his uh, basketball style plays. Would that be someone like Bobby decoyed over Reed? Sigh, yes. Could be. <laughs> Could uh, be. Yeah, they've been great from those this season. Uh, so nine goals compared to five set-piece goals when they were last in the Premier League. And obviously that is with close to half a season left to play. 
Just a quick one on that is that it's not just down to the opportunity that Fulham are scoring so much from set plays. They have the lowest set plays per goal. So accounting for the, the opportunities that they have. They, they take basically uh, 15 set plays per goal scored, mm. which is lower than any other side. So it shows that they are actually shrewd in the way that they play the set pieces, not just that they're taking loads and scoring loads. One of, of many ways that Marco Silva has completely changed the trajectory of that football club uh, and a big reason why they are doing so well this season in the Premier League. Interestingly, per tackle win percentage this season, uh, the second side is also one that came up from the Championship last year, showing grit and desire and passion, Nottingham Forest, uh, and they're also a Liam Tharm offering. Yeah, and I think in typical fashion, obviously, we covered the newly promoted teams uh, back in sort of the, the summer and pre-season and what they might need to do to stay up. And it feels cliche to talk about having a sort of a fortress at home or, you know, uh, getting a lot of your points there. They've scored just three away goals all season, um, but they've scored the first goal in nine of their 11 home Premier League games. And of course, did that again um, the weekend just gone and, and won the game 1-0. Um, and that's the most of any team. Um, I've literally put hashtag fortress in my notes in terms of their... So nine times that they've scored the first goal at home, that's more than your Arsenal in your cities that is yeah and uh, 18 of their 24 points have come uh, at home in the league so really making the city ground a, a tough place to go do you ever see a stat like that and get a little concerned when there's such a disparity between home form and away form and the obvious question is right well in the next 15 games what's more likely to happen that the home form might drop off a little bit or that the away form will improve strikes me that whichever variable change is going to have quite a big impact on their season yeah I know, I completely agree. It's also a good ground to be a fortress because they've got the Trent acting as a bit of a moat. <laughs> so it works well. Yeah, very nice. Okay, next up is Arsenal. 56.8% uh, tackle win percentage. This is all per FB ref, I should say. Fulham and Forest, pretty far clear actually. Uh, but it's Arsenal, the league leaders, up next. And Mark, uh, it's your go. Well, I was going to go with the fact that they are the most settled side in the league. Um, they've made just 14 changes to their starting lineup all season, unchanged 10 times, which is more than any other side. But we already spoke about that in, in recent weeks. So I thought I'd go a little bit deeper. And they have the highest share of left-footed shots in the Ooh. league, 45% of uh, the, all of their shots are left-footed. So you're thinking Martin Odegaard, um, Bukayo Saka, Xhaka um, and Zinchenko as well. And I think they're left-footers. I think left-footers in general are always very left-footed, if that makes sense, compared to right-footers who are a little bit more ambipedal, if that's the right word. The right word. See, I thought the same and I tried to prove this using some stats a few years ago. I think I helped you with that, actually. And it wasn't the case, it? Was wasn't it? the case, no. <laughs> You're all yeah. Um, You've literally debunked this myth and you're still peddling it. Well, the stat still remains. The stat is still true. Um, I thought that it would be um, because Saka, who had maybe taken the most shots for Arsenal, it's actually, it's currently Martin Odegaard with 42 left-footed shots, only six with his right foot. So at least within Arsenal, the, the stat still stands. Interesting. I also think that Odegaard is almost allergic to shooting at times, isn't he? He's one of those players, a bit like Ozil was as well, where he, he seems like he'd prefer to play a scooped ball over the top for someone else to shoot rather than shoot himself. But uh, when he does, he does so with his left peg. They've also, you talk about being a settled side, uh, minutes played per substitute, Arsenal at the bottom again. So not only does he not like changing his team, but even in-game, he doesn't particularly like bringing on subs early and he hasn't needed to, I think it's fair to say, all season. Uh, next up is Everton. Back to you, Mark. Well, Everton are a tough one because they are a bit meh at everything for everything we spoke about uh, last week. But one I included was that Jordan Pickford has faced uh, more shots than any other player this season. 
just edging ahead of uh, David Raya at Brentford. He's faced 321 shots, so it shows just how porous uh, Everton have been at the back. Again, everything we spoke about in the, the previous podcast. Um, but at the other end, I thought this was quite a fun one. They've registered the most off-target shots of any team in the league with 71 off-target shots. But I think that's made even more impressive by the fact that they have the second lowest volume of non-penalty shots in the league. So not only are they not shooting very much, but of the shots that they do take, it's the highest that um, that don't hit the target. So they definitely need to improve defensively, which they did seem to do well, um, but in an attacking sense as well. So did you say 321 shots faced on target? No, so he's faced 321 <sighs> shots at at the goal, but it shot on target. Um, I see, not apologies. Would have been a very busy goalkeeper. 16 a game. I just thought you did the maths. I was mm. thought, they're not that bad, are they? Um, <laughs> no, not quite. I, I think you can spin those stats into a positive using what you might like to call variance. I feel like Everton's shooting in the second half of the season, particularly with a little change of atmosphere, I think it's more likely to be more accurate than remain at that level of inaccuracy. Can't stay uh, and, that bad. And if we assume that Pickford will have to face fewer shots with Dyche's force field, then uh, I'm I'm feeling much more positive about Everton than you guys were last week. And yes, I have got uh, last week's win fresh in my mind. It's time for Sir Michael Cox. He's been so excited to reveal some of his uh, stats and research here. And you kick off with Crystal Palace. Yeah, a fun one this, because I think it's the kind of thing you might have been able to guess. They have the most... Uh, take-ons in the league i.e. the most attempted dribbles past an opponent uh, and also the most successful take-ons which you'd broadly expect uh, Wilfred Zaha is the main man uh, Jordan Ayew is up there but also Eze Ulisse and Schlupp it just feels quite Crystal Palace they've got a certain style about the way they play a lot of players from you know this kind of South London area where people are talking about oh they always you know playing cages when they grow up and they're very good one-on-ones so yeah, I haven't been that impressed with Palace so far this season, I must say, but uh, they're very good at that. They have a player on loan at Charlton in League One called Jezrin Raksaki, and I consider him the best dribbler of any player in League One. It's his first loan, age just 20, and he's been absolutely excellent. So he's very much the, could be the next cab off the rank. They also have a loan here, uh, I think he's gone to Hull a couple of weeks ago, called Malcolm Ebiove, who they bought from Derby in the summer, was previously a kid at Arsenal, and he is another left-footed, plays off the right, 1v1 specialist. So it's good to see that the the production line uh, should carry on, even post-Zaha. Uh, we're at Chelsea next. It's back to you, Mark. Chelsea, well... I was look when I was looking at the most settled side. I thought I'd look at the the least settled side as well. And unsurprisingly, um, Chelsea have used the most players um, of anyone in the league. Thirty two different players they've used. Just one ahead of Nottingham Forest, and we know all all about how Nottingham Forest all of their signings this season. Um, Graham Potter and I suppose Thomas Tuchel across this season have also had the joint most substitutions used per game, four point five per game. Um, so I thought that was interesting to kind of flick through. But the thing that I found most interesting was Thiago Silva has made more forward passes than any other centre-back in the Premier League this season, 545. I think it kind of links with the point that I made before that it's, I find it quite funny that Chelsea are kind of splashing the cash on these new young players for astronomical fees. And it's the player who is, who's arguably the most consistent is the oldest player at 38 years old and the player that they got on a free transfer when when he obviously came. So... I think ultimately it's the right decision for Chelsea to to invest in, in youth and in the future, but it's still Silva who's uh, who's defying his age. It's one of my favourite parts of the the modern Premier League, if you like, is how good Thiago Silva still is 
age 38 because received wisdom is that there's a certain age and it differs uh, depending on what position that you play where you are highly likely to be past it and it seems like it gets younger and younger over time right uh, but Thiago Silva is well past the age that people think he should be well past it and yet Michael with his is it just pure intelligence like football IQ reading of the game that cancels out any deficiencies that come with age yeah I think so He's been a really good signing. I must say I was massively sceptical about it. I saw a few PSG games, a couple of Brazil games where I thought his pace had gone. I think there's been a couple of games he struggled. Was it, was it West Brom? I think maybe earlier on he really struggled um, in terms of pace. But yeah, hasn't been much sign of Could that. Could have been altitude that because the Hawthorns famously the <laughs> highest ground <laughs> I think in it was the a English Stanford professional game. game. I, I think it was a Stamford Bridge Well, game. maybe he was too close to the river then. Uh, could yeah, be. maybe. Got an answer for everything. Uh, let's go Man City, Michael. Well, there's a few obvious ones here. I mean, I could have talked about possession or chances created, but that would have been obvious and very boring. So I've picked out one that I hope is a little bit surprising to people, and that's that Manchester City have got the best aerial success percentage in the league. Um, that is interesting. And when you think about it, I mean, they've got quite a lot of big players. So, I mean, you would think sometimes that fullbacks might be kind of weak in the air, the kind of fullbacks that Guardiola likes, but they've had... Cancelo there, no, he's gone now, but he's played a lot. Carl Walker's good in the air. John Stones has played kind of a right-sided role. Nathan Ake is often their left-sided defender. That's not taking into account Laporte, Akanji and Diaz. Obviously, all these players aren't going to be playing at the same time. But then they've got Rodri in front of them. They've got Erling Haaland up front, so they can go longer if they want to. And just to cap this off, I think is um, makes it particularly interesting ahead of next week's game is that while Manchester City have the best aerial success percentage, Arsenal have got the lowest. Mm. Hope I'm not spoiling anyone's stat for later on, but that's a really interesting contrast. Get it in the mixer. <laughs> Get it in the mixer. Um, happily, uh, from 55.9% tackle win percentage to 55.8% uh, is their City rivals Manchester United, Mark. Yeah, I looked at... Basically, how direct Manchester United were. They have the most goals scored from fast breaks in the league this season. Six goals scored. Um, and for those who are wondering, uh, Opta defines a fast break as an attempt created uh, after quickly turning defence into attack uh, after winning the ball back in their own half. So it's a proxy of counter-attacking, essentially. Uh, and they've scored more, more goals from fast breaks than anyone else. More direct attacks in general as well. So looking more at the process, not just outcome of, of goals scored. We've spoken about direct attacks slightly different definition but the same thing as a proxy of counter-attacking uh, and it shows just how direct they've been you think of the players they've got obviously Marcus Rashford's having a fantastic season Bruno Fernandes is direct when he gets the ball we know that Anthony has scored a goal I think it was against Everton um, off the back of a, a direct attack and and the return of Jadon Sancho as well in terms of his when he's came when he came from uh, Borussia Dortmund, very vertical in the way that they play, and maybe playing to his strengths. If he can get back fit and firing, um, then it will it will play into his hands as well. And one of our very good tactics writers, Ahmed Walid, has written on both uh, Fernandez in transition and also Casemiro. So if people want to see, explain and analyze the the tactics of it. Then uh, yeah, go go read that. I, I will absolutely do that. This is interesting to me, Michael, because over the last few years of doing this podcast, and uh, it's fair to say Manchester United have, have had. Uh, differing fortunes at times since we've been doing this is that under Solskjaer, for example, Manchester United were a pretty good threat on the counter-attack. Those seemed like the games they were most comfortable in. Uh, and it was in their possession play where they very specifically fell down compared to other teams that you'd expect to be challenging for top four for the title. So how much do you think they've improved their 
possession play this season, their build-up play, clearly still thriving in terms of direct attacks. And that is absolutely not a negative for sure, doing very well on that front. But in terms of the other side of the game to, to become a more complete attacking team, how are they getting on in that transition? Yeah, they're much better in that respect. They can play either way. They can play direct or they can build up more slowly. I've liked it when Ericsson's been deep. I think he can play passes through the lines. Uh, they're quite good at switching the play late on as well. I always like about, well, certainly Ten Hag's Ajax side as well. You kind of attack down the right and then suddenly just play a you know, big pass across to the left back or whatever. So, yeah, I think they're, they're a good side to watch this season, Manchester United. The first time they've been good to watch in quite a while, I would say. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I mean, on that, in terms of switching, I, I looked as well. I think they have the average, the highest average uh, sequence width. So it shows just how much they're keeping those players wide from, from touchline to touchline. So those switches kind of feed into the fact that they do like to keep things nice and wide. Interesting. Uh, Southampton are up next. Very much doom and gloom at the moment, Michael. What do you think is the most notable statistic around Southampton this season? I've got a couple here because I thought they're quite interesting. I hope you don't mind that. The first is is quite a basic one that I think you, you just get from watching them, which is that they've got the lowest save percentage in the league by miles. So 54%. Bazunu, I know he's very young, 20-year-old, coming from Man City. Um, very promising. But yeah, 54%. The next worst in the league is 63%. There's quite a big jump. And that means they've only kept one clean, uh, clean sheet all season. But the other one I found more intriguing and, and had to do a bit more digging on was they've got the most aerial duels won in the league, but they've also got the most aerial duels lost in the league. Right. And I found that very interesting. So my first question was, where are they in terms of success percentage? Uh, actually seventh lowest in that respect. Um, and the the answer, which I suppose isn't that surprising, is that when you look at um, the goal kicks, uh, very high percentage in terms of them being launched downfield. Um, and just FB Ref have a stat about launches in general, which is any pass more than 40 yards. Um, and they're top on that. So they're basically just playing a lot of long balls. Their strikers are contesting lots of aerial challenges. I don't think of their strikers as being... That good in the air, really? I think of maybe running onto balls in behind. Um, but yeah, clearly they're quite direct and a little bit route one at times that isn't necessarily suiting them. If I could make a request to the stats companies, let's say FB Ref, they seem like a good one to target here. I'd quite like, and maybe you can do this. I'm sure Mark could do this with a bit of code. I'd like to see aerial win percentage or just aerial stats broken down into areas of the pitch in the same way that lots of other on-ball stats are broken down into areas of the pitch. Because to me, it seems you could easily have a team whose aerial win percentage could be completely massaged by their centre-backs being incredible in the air and their strikers being terrible in the air. I guess what I'm saying is there are different types of aerial duel, right? Completely. Area of the pitch is one, but also the strength of the opponent that you're facing as well. This is something that we use uh, in the duel ratings within the Smarter Scout data that we use. Nice. Like if... Uh, I'm going to compare me and you here, Ali. I'm six foot four and I am probably going to be expected to win more aerial duels than you will. Yes. But if I were to be against Tom Warville, previously of this parish, that would probably be a, a tighter contest because he's a similar height world, to me. Aerial <laughs> exactly. But the point being that it's it's accounting for when it's looking at the strength of an opponent in the air, it's accounting for their height, their previous success, maybe their position and and factoring in far more things than just two players go up for a ball and one heads it. And yeah, just to support what you say, Ali, I think part of the reason why Manchester City are very high in aerial success percentage is because they don't play long balls. Mm -hmm. And I think aerial duels favour the defensive side. 
has usually two centre-backs instead of one. Centre-back can usually see it coming. He's got a bit of an easier job at just heading it downfield, whereas the striker's usually trying to kind of be a bit more nuanced. So, I th- yeah, I think there's a correlation there. And I think as far as I'm aware, the success is generally just winning the first contact. It doesn't mean you need to win the header, it lands to a teammate or you sort of retain the ball. There's a great thing I think um, Allardyce used to have a, a long ball success thing considered as not just winning the first contact but keeping possession. So there might be more nuance. I imagine people in clubs are already looking at that in sort of greater detail than, you know, coaches and managers now don't just want to win the header but keep the ball or put it in, you know, into touch, into a good location. Mm. Just to tie off Southampton, Michael, when you were talking about save percentage being so low I, I wanted to defend the goalkeeper by trying to look at xg per shot and maybe think well maybe the defense is just putting them in the worst possible position to defend shots it's not really the case um around an 11 percent probability in terms of xg per shot which is very much mid-table for premier league teams you know not giving up horrendous shots on average or uh, or protecting their keeper particularly well so um again i know there's much more layers to things like post shot xg and the quality of of the actual shot itself from the person taking it um, but certainly not something that reflects very well on the Southampton goalkeeping unit. Uh, Aston Villa are up next. What's interesting about Villa please Mark Carey? I struggled with this one. This was the one that I I couldn't really find too much on Um, but I did find that they have suffered the most. (laughs) Such a good tone change there. (laughs) I really struggled with this one but I did find. I found one thing and it was that they suffered the most they have suffered the most fouls of any team in the league this season. 272 fouls that they have suffered. Um, Then I looked into it kind of at the player level to see okay is there anyone that's standing out in particular and there's not really which I think is quite interesting. So in terms of the players who have suffered the most fouls in the league it's based on what Michael said before Wilfred Zaha and Jordan Ayew because they're taking on their players quite a lot then they're suffering the most fouls as well and Esri Konsa is the highest for Aston Villa as the 10th highest player in the league to, to suffer fouls which kind of doesn't seem seems odd to me I just didn't think it would be um, someone in, in that position for example but um, Esri Konsa John McGinn uh, and Jacob Ramsey are the, the three highest for Aston Villa but that was the one I was kind of grappling with. And I think overall, looking at all the other stats, Villa have been kind of average in a lot of things this season, which does reflect their position in the league as well. They're 11th in the league. So kind of a lot of what their yeah. numbers are are as average as you can get. I think it's been impressive seeing their game management now under Emery, sort of drawing fouls and really breaking up the game. I know it's really angered a lot of opposition fans, but I think as long as you're not watching your own team be sort of dismantled by it, it can be quite entertaining to see just psychologically how they can really just sort of push teams and make them sort of uh, self, self-destruct. self I think that's a good point as well. They are probably a little bit more average because they are going in a transition from one manager to another. So it's kind of a bit of a, a melting pot there. But uh, yeah, that's all I had on Villa. UEFA Conference League champions 23-24? Surely. <laughs> Emery's Villa, surely. <laughs> I do find that quite interesting about um, Fouls 1 because in my head, the players that are normally top of the Fouls 1 or Fouls drawn charts are either Jack Grealish <laughs> types or a target man who just gets tons of balls pumped towards him. Like Kevin Davies was always the most fouled player and the player that committed most fouls in the league, right? So I would have expected the team to be at the top there to have one or both of those things and Villa don't really. So that's quite interesting. Uh, Kudos to you, my friend. Tottenham Hotspur are up next. Michael. Yeah, a couple of things here that are linked. They've had the most touches in their own penalty area which is clear or just ahead of 
Wolves and Bournemouth, who obviously are pretty defensive and not very good sides so far this season. You can expand that. They've also got the most touches in their own third, uh, just ahead of Chelsea and Leicester, so more possession-based teams. Uh, and I think that links back to what we've spoken before about Tottenham in terms of their build-up play. And indeed, a similar stat is that their goal kicks travel the shortest distance. So, yeah, it's what we've done. We, we've touched on before in podcast. They like having possession in tight areas. They want to invite the opposition onto them and then try and play through them. Nicely done. That's exactly what we were after. Brighton are next. Obviously, even the algorithm gave Brighton to Liam. <laughs> yeah, very, very nice algorithm. Um, <laughs> the goal scoring has been an issue over recent recent seasons and I think fans in particular are delighted at the rate at which they're now scoring. Uh, 27 goals in 14 Premier League games under Roberto De Zerbi, which is the fourth most in the league uh, and the most of any non-Big Six side. So nice sort of comparison to teams around them budget-wise. Uh, the sixth for XG in that time, they're running a bit hot, um, about six goals over, but I think Brighton fans might tell you that's long overdue uh, and starting to, to maybe regress a tiny bit. Uh, the second highest for shot accuracy as well, uh, 41%, which is just below Brentford, and they were almost bottom of those metrics. Um, you know, When they were underperforming, they weren't even hitting the target. And they've got the third best conversion rate too, scoring the uh, second most goals in the last 15 minutes of games of any team. They've got a plus seven goal difference, scoring eight, only conceded one late on. And of course, in the last couple of weeks of one, uh, two games, you know, very late uh, at the death. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. What's the biggest quirk of the Magpies? Newcastle, Michael. Two things, again, related. The highest save percentage, 82.5%. That's quite far clear of the next, which is uh, Brentford's 77%, quite a big margin. And that translates into 12 clean sheets, uh, which is the most in the league. Again, I think probably most people might know that. But it's three clear of the next most clean sheets, which, again, is a pretty big margin. I mean, Nick Pope's had a really good season since he went there, but... Statistically, I think maybe even uh, looks better in that respect than I, I would have expected. The the Pope v Pickford for England debate rages into like its fifth year now, and they're still so you know they are interesting. the 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 topic is still interesting and freshly interesting. It seems season to season. Yeah, and he's had to uh, kind of expand his game. I think Pope since he went to Newcastle, like he's he's asked to play out a little bit more. I know they're still you know he's still going more direct than most teams. But I just think Burnley was such an outlier that he just had no opportunities at all. Even just, I know it sounds silly, but even just getting back passes and playing it 20 yards to the other side, he just wasn't doing that at Burnley. So yeah, maybe it's uh, it's more of a debate now. I mean, Ramsdale's had a good season as well. So England do have, I think, three serious options now. It did feel like the answer was always, if Pope can prove that he can play, then he should be England's number one. But now maybe he's still not getting as much of an opportunity to prove that he can play. But even what he has done doesn't seem to be enough what, at the moment. What are you shaking your head about here? I, I watched him against Germany for England um, at, at Wembley and I've just still not been convinced by his kicking. I think his decision-making is poor. Yeah, his kicking it, in that game is, is awful. It's it kicking like generally. Um, to make that it it mm -hmm. does, probably some outcome bias as well. Um, but no, I think there's a reason why Newcastle is still largely kicking long. I think they've probably got enough quality in the back line, uh, in the midfield pivot. You've got, you know, 
Bruno Guimaraes in there. You've got, um, you know, Byrne played in, in a high possession system at Brighton. Uh, Sharon and Botman, I think you've got good balance to play out. I don't think it's any, you know, they've not really got a big target man besides Chris Wood, who isn't their first choice number nine. Um, and it's kicking over distance is, is fine. I think it's good enough. So that's probably why why they do it. I think, I don't know, I think Pickford's hard done by, personally. Next up, we got Wolves. And some would consider this to be a bit of a hospital pass because Wolves haven't been a very exciting team, I think it's fair to say, really since the start of last season. They're the lowest scorers in the Premier League this season. But that can't possibly be the stat here, Liam, because you've put more work into it than that. I have. It's one of the stats uh, I'd written down. Um, they're, they're one of the most improved teams in the league. So I was trying to look for, you know, maybe a, a slight a slither of hope. Um, they were bottom on Christmas Day, and obviously that's not a good record for most teams. Um, the only exceptions I could find that hadn't gone down um, from being bottom uh, since the start of 2010 were Sunderland in 13-14 and Leicester, of course, in 2014-15. Um, they've improved a fair bit. They've this uh, sorry since Christmas Day. They've actually outscored opponents, albeit by one. Um, still only scored uh, six goals in total in that time. But only seven teams have got more than their ten points uh, since Boxing Day. So they're you know starting to tick over uh, under Lopetegui. Um, obviously had a really really good win um, this past week. But I think there's signs of you know being a um, a more complete side I think against Everton in particular they impressed me for their ability to transition when they needed to um, so maybe some foundations being built now and obviously signings being made as well to sort of replenish the squad So what's the stat there? They're just they are getting better. <laughs> they were quite bad. Uh, and they might, they might, it, it's a stat in advance. Um, so if they can stay up, then expect uh, staying up. Yeah. A stat um, in advance. Amazing. Uh, Bournemouth next. Michael. Uh, well, AFC Bournemouth obviously are top alphabetically. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, no, there's, um, I mean, they're not a good side, Bournemouth. They're, they're bottom in quite a lot of categories, I must say. Um, the one I've gone for, again, not just because they're bottom, but really because of the margin. They've allowed their opponents 422 crosses this season. The next is 334. So that's about 90 more than any other side, which shows how, I mean, they played very deep, particularly under Scott Park. They played very deep. They are just confident they can deal with crosses. Um, and can they? Well, uh, yeah, again, it's not an aspect I think they're particularly good at, but they've they've been deep, they've been very passive. You know, Parker's size don't really ever press high. Um, so yeah, again, it's it's about the margin rather than just being bottom in that stat. Right, okay. Uh, Leeds are up next. Managerless Leeds United for Liam. This is slightly a different one. Um, they've reached the fifth round of the FA Cup uh, for the first time since 2015-2016, um, which I thought was just quite interesting. I mean, been dumped out a lot in recent years. Um, I've got Newport, Crawley, Sutton, uh, who were non-league at the time, 84 places below them. Of course, they were 2 down at Cardiff and resurrected it and then won the um, won the replay. Uh, and they've scored 10 goals in three games this season. Uh, that's as many as they'd scored in their previous 14 FA Cup games. So um, not really much hope for the Premier League for them necessarily. Um, but I thought it was just quite interesting that they'd, they'd finally turned around in that regard. Well, is there not much hope for them? Jesse Marsh uh, left this week. Uh, Michael, were you surprised that Marsh was relieved of his duties at Leeds? What, what would you expect them to turn next? What did they, what did they need to do? I wasn't that surprised. I don't know. I was a little bit sad because I, I think they've been quite fun to watch this season. But maybe they're fun to watch because they've got a lot of individuals who are fun to watch rather than good as a team. I don't, know, I, I don't think he was doing an awful job, but the, the results weren't coming in. And yeah, I think everyone sensed they were going to make a, a change. Maybe a little bit harsh timing, you know, but overall the results. I mean, since the World Cup, there's there's been a couple of teams who 
the form has really turned. Leicester had that as well. They're excellent. The, the, the few weeks before the World Cup came back and just seemed to have forgotten how to play with each other. So, um, yeah, there you go. Bit of an age-old narrative. I think they're fun to watch as a neutral because the games are often entertaining. I mean, the Manchester United, Leeds United game uh, this week has, has was entertaining for the same sort of reason. But as a Leeds fan, from speaking to Leeds fans, they just get really frustrated with that sort of volatility. They can either be really quite good for a, for a period and really bad for a, another period and they just seem to be so, so open. And that's kind of why something, I guess, had to change. But then you think about the, the RB players, the Red Bull style players that Marsh has brought in. They've committed, it feels like they've committed to that and then got rid of him. And then there's obviously the players still left and you just think, what direction could they now go in? I'm not sure. I was really intrigued by Patrick Bamford's post-match comments uh, on Match of the Day where they were asking what he thought went wrong. And uh, I think it might have been his first game back after a, a, another period out with injury. Um, he missed a couple of chances, had a good one off, off of a cutback, but he quite clearly and openly stated that, you know, he felt he struggled. He was 1v2 all game, he was saying, and that he didn't have enough runners going beyond him. So he wasn't exactly like calling out Marsh's tactics, but... I've never really heard a striker come out and say, oh, the system around me wasn't really doing enough. I needed more disruptive central midfielders running beyond the ball and to try and stretch them and try and make space. So I was just, yeah, really intrigued to see a player, you know, and tactically it was great to see that insight and, and hear it from their perspective. But I thought that's quite damning if if one of your own players and one of your key players, really, if he's fully fit, um, is going to be openly critical um, of, of the system. Interesting. Uh, just a couple left now, Mark. What's the best pub ammo for Leicester City fans? For Leicester City, uh, they have created the fewest chances from set plays of any side this season. I know we spoke about set plays at the start. Um, just 27 chances uh, created from set plays. And we know they had their issues last season with conceding from set pieces. They had a lot of issues uh, in that regard. 21 of their uh, 59 Premier League goals last season came from dead ball situations. So there was a widely um, spoken about issue after every game. Brendan Rodgers saying we need to sort it out. We need to take more control over the situation I think he was what he was saying um, and last season only Everton conceded more um, from set plays and I looked into it and they've I didn't realise this but they've actually brought in a, a set piece coach at the start of this season um, someone called Lars uh, Knudsen um, a former Michelin assistant manager um, I didn't realise that they brought him in uh, at the start of this season but they've scored five from set pieces this season but they've conceded seven so which is the joint fourth um, in the league so far so he's still not doing great, shall we say, um, but still obviously plenty of time to go. And then I looked into obviously the profile of the players and there's not too many players, you think about it kind of systemically, there's not too many really imposing players across the whole of the pitch. Obviously there's there's the centre-backs who are going to get up for the ball, but there's not, you spoke about Manchester City before, just how strong and physical and tall they actually are. It doesn't feel like they have all that many um, tall players. They don't have much height in the team. So you'd maybe think that might continue for a little bit longer. Well, I did have some Leicester fans hopefully messaging me when they signed Harry Suter from True, Stoke. That's a good point. Who is, I'm going to say, six foot six, yeah, maybe yeah. six, seven. That's a good Certainly point. Certainly the tallest outfield player in the championship by the time he left. Uh, hopeful that he might be the man to change this terrible set piece record. But he has barely ever scored from a set piece. So I'd, again, maybe that's a problem with delivery that Stoke had, but 61 championship games, just one goal. He's got a few more for Fleetwood on loan in League One. But again, this is actually, despite his size, not someone that I've ever associated with coming close from a load of set piece opportunities. He does have, as people like to point out, six 
goals in 14 games for Australia. And in fact, at one point, it was six goals in five caps for Australia uh, as a centre-back. Uh, the first two coming on debut against Nepal, uh, then three against Chinese Taipei in two games, uh, and his latest was against uh, Jordan. So on the international stage, at least, Suter has proven himself to be a quite sensational goal-getter from set-piece situations. Coxie, West Ham in your sights. Very bad at shooting in two different ways. So they've got the lowest shot on target percentage. So the percentage of their shots, which is on target, which is 25%. The average is about 33%, which obviously works very nicely if you want to say one in four rather than one in three. But then in addition to that, when they do get it on target, the opposition goalkeepers have the highest save percentage against West Ham in the league. That's a blow. Again, the average is about 70% and against West Ham it's 82%. So not only are they not shooting on target very often, when they do get on target, they're kind of just seemingly put it down the, the throats of the goalkeeper. Um, in terms of wayward shooting in general, Declan Rice is a particular offender. 24 shots, only four have forced a save. Not good enough. I've always thought of Jared Bowen as a very good finisher, a good shooter. Well, I don't I'm, know if that's borne out in the numbers this I, season. I must say his stats were actually quite poor in that respect as well. There um, you go. Finishing skill, hey, doesn't always translate from season to season, does it? It's interesting you said that because Mark and I did a piece, I think it was over the summer, where we looked at uh, a player's ability to shoot under pressure and in sort of high or low clarity situations. I believe from memory that Bowen came out, at least last season, as statistically the best under pressure shooter or in high pressure situations in the league. That's right. I think that was our first piece together and you outlined it really well in the in the actual, well, I outlined it in the data and you showed some really nice examples of him doing that. And um, But just going back to West Ham more generally, they have... Um, underperformed against their XG more than any other side in the league uh, this season. They've scored nine goals fewer. So for whatever reason, whether it's themselves not shooting on target or a bit of bad luck with some good goalkeeping, good defending, etc., um, they are underperforming. So you'd imagine across the rest of the season, if they continue to do what they're doing, that will regress to the mean. Bowen can find his shooting boots. My, my opinion of him as a shooter was, was very much eye test base. Which, which I know is pretty old school. <laughs> um, I always felt like, particularly in the championship, albeit against poorer goalkeepers, his shots always seemed to me to go slightly harder than everyone else's and more in the corner than everyone else's. So that's the level of detail that I'm bringing to the table. <laughs> uh, two to play at Liverpool are up next. Liam, you talk about high clarity, low clarity situations. What's your clarity level when it comes to Liverpool at the moment? Well, I think it's an interesting stat in itself, obviously how we've ranked these teams that they're so low down in the in the tackle success. Um, and Mark's written about, you know, their issues defending transition and counter-attacks. But going through the numbers, Alisson is the second best keeper in the league for goals saved above average or goals prevented, which is, is close to eight. Second um, best. The second best, uh, which shows even with all their problems that, uh, you know, they're still relying on him to bail them out. And to be fair, he was, I believe, top for 1v1 uh, either saves or goals prevented in their title winning season and, and over recent years but he's had the third most sweeper keepings as well so defensive actions outside his own penalty area he's had 40 of those and of those actions his occur the farthest from goal of, of any player so 20 yards so he's literally coming well outside of his area to, to deal with these which I think exemplifies really the, the problem they've had um, defending he's now facing more than four shots on target a game uh, it's 4.6 and that's up from 2.5 and 2.8 in his first two seasons so it's really really skyrocketed and then a nice one to tie off in a bow they've had the joint fewest yellow cards in the league so I think they really need to just start kicking people a bit more interesting a very low tackle win percentage and a very low yellow cards number is is that is there any correlation there? That's what we find out. So 
the tackle win percentage per FB ref metric, there's something that's really baffling me, albeit my brain isn't as developed as some of yours. But we're at Brentford now, the 20th of 20. Of the 20 teams, only three are below a 50% win percentage. Now, in my head, each one tackle should have a lost tackle as well. And therefore, all of the tackles no, would, no. would come to 50% win and tackle 50% versus loss. a dribble. Someone's dribbling with the ball and someone slides in and that's not a tackle. Just use for the, the EFL 50-50 crunching tackle yeah, is what yeah. I'm hearing here with people, bodies flying in. Um, yeah, I feel like a complete idiot. That makes complete <laughs> sense. <laughs> Almost immediately. It speaks to a wider point as well. Something that we try to do when we talk about the volume that a player tackles um, within the, the coverage editorially that we true we do true tackles, which doesn't just account for trying to make a tackle, but also includes things like fouls committed and challenges lost. So that's something that Tom Warville, again, um, did this when he first joined The Athletic, was to make clear that a tackle can be quite subjective. So making sure that you kind of lock it down as all of the attempts to stick a foot in and then base it on your win percentage. And that's not to discredit what's going on in an FB ref, but um, I think there's it's just a point about the wider definition of what makes a tackle. Completely rattled by an embarrassing error. Let's finish this off ASAP with Brentford with a 43.8% tackle win percentage, which is over 3% lower than Liverpool in second bottom in this table. Uh, something to dig into, maybe. Hopefully not the stat you've got for me, Liam. Uh, no, not not really. I've actually done a piece on this with Jay semi-recently. Uh, it's been coming up and was, a, uh, at least to me, quite an interesting sort of quirk. Um, but they, alongside Liverpool, are the only teams since the start of last season, which is obviously Brentford's entire Premier League history, uh, to go in front um, or to go one that up. You can look at this either way uh, and not lose a game. Um, they've won 21 times uh, and drawn seven uh, in the 28 games that they have gone ahead. If we split that to purely going one that up, then it's 21 games, but 17 wins and four draws. And of course, there's big six teams among this as well. They've not just beaten teams around them. They've gone in front against City, uh, against Liverpool, of course, Arsenal in their first ever Premier League game. They did drop points against Tottenham from 2-0 up, but I think their ability to go in front um, often still score a second goal. They don't win many games 1-0, um, but they're quite a low possession team. 35% uh, on average went ahead, but we've seen how they can hit teams in transition. The Man United game was a perfect case in point. So I think with that, I believe it was in Buomo goal um, from literally back to front in, in second. So... Yeah, I think the job that, that Thomas Frank is doing there in that regard to make them such an elite game management team is fantastic. Interesting. Uh, last one for me. You said that you did that piece with Jay semi-recently. When does recently become semi-recently? What's Ooh. the definition there? Uh, that one I haven't got a definition for. I'm thinking probably three weeks ago now, four weeks ago, um, roughly. It's like short-term, medium-term, long-term. Yeah, Yeah. what's mid-term? Very yeah. philosophical now. Um, mm. I just look at stats, Ali. I don't, don't bother with all of that. I always talk about clubs doing things in the mid to long term because yeah. I don't really know what mid term means. So I just package it up with long term. It sounds very smart. Uh, and that's always the goal, not always successful, uh, as has been made clear. What fun, guys. I've absolutely loved that. Um, such a great idea. Coxie, thank you for remembering what we did a couple of years ago. Uh, and brilliant from Liam, from Mark, from Michael to come up with uh, such interesting stats for all 20 Premier League teams. Please let us know what you thought about this episode, particularly if you enjoyed it, but also if you didn't. Uh, you can comment on the episode on the app. There's a whole area for podcasts. You can listen ad-free through the Athletic app. You can also uh, leave comments for us uh, and you can tweet us, of course, as well. Sign up to The Athletic uh, by heading to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. You'll pay £1.99 a month for 
everything on The Athletic, everything being produced by these three and so many more. Uh, you'll pay pound ninety nine a month for the first 12 months of your subscription. As for us, uh, make sure you check out the bonus Tactics Pod episode this week. That's on Harry Kane, inserting ourselves into the Kane discussion, Liam and Mark, with some very interesting insight. Thanks for listening to this one. Make sure you subscribe to the pod feed. We'll be back again next week on The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.